Hallelujah, church. Let me invite you to take your Bibles, open them to Mark chapter 10, verse 17 through 31, the same passage that our sister Jocelyn just read. Mark 10, 17 through 31. As uh, Pastor Andrew and I were meditating on this text together over lunch this week, we were, I think, both struck by just how amazing God is as he's ordered the scriptures. You know, one of the things that we believe about this uh, this word of God, this book, is that it all fits together. It flows exactly how it needs to. And it was, it was pretty amazing to see that as we were preparing for this morning. And because we just came out of Jesus's encounter with children. And he says, permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter into it at all. It's a pretty, pretty intense statement that he made. And, and last week, Pastor Andrew unpacked this for us. And one of the statements that he made is that the attitude of children, and one of the reasons why this has to be is because children are naturally without rights, without resources. They are not a self-dependent people. Anyone who's ever babysat kids or who has kids knows that kids are not self-dependent. In fact, they are incredibly others-dependent. And it takes this same type of attitude, the same type of mentality that we are without rights, resources, we are not self-dependent to enter into the kingdom. And so it, it is not a coincidence that the very next person that we meet in the gospel of Mark is perhaps if there were if there was a spectrum, he would be on the other end of that spectrum from a child. It's a, a rich young ruler. We don't know all of those things about him from just the Mark text. But if we pull in Matthew, if we pull in Luke, we find out that he is young. He's not so young to be a child, but he is a man. He's a young man. He's rich. He owns lots of property. And in some way, he's a ruler, either within a synagogue or perhaps in some sort of official government capacity. He has some kind of power, some kind of authority. In a lot of ways, he would be what everyone else wants to be. And, and that's especially the case as we would read on further in this section that he is a religious man. He's not just healthy, young, wealthy, powerful, but he's also religious. He seeks, at least to some extent, the God of Israel. But we come to find out that not everything is as it seems. So before we jump in, let me pray for us one more time, and then we'll get going. Father, thank you for giving us the Bible. Thank you for wanting to be known so that we could know who you are, so that we could discover who you are, so that we could understand what you were like and what you value that we could understand what eternal life is, that we could understand what it means to uh, gain eternal life. In these moments, God, I confess openly that <clears throat> I feel like uh, my tank is on empty and um, I feel weak and nervous, but God, I think that's a, a wonderful opportunity for you to demonstrate your strength in my weakness. And so, God, would you please bless all of us with a rich and convicting and powerful word about your kingdom, about um, self-dependence and all of these matters that 
um, that we wrestle with and help us to see you more clearly and as a result also to worship you more passionately. And we ask this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. So verse 17, as he, Jesus, was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? You, uh, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. And he said to him, teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. This is who this man is. Rich, powerful, he's young. Again, all these things that probably many of us Um, when we're not in our best moment, we wish we could be, but he's also religious. He just said that I have kept all of these things from my youth up. And, And this isn't the same type of interaction that we see when scribes or Pharisees come up to Jesus. They come up and they'll use that same title. They'll call him teacher. But you can tell that there's something else going on. Maybe there's a cynicism or a skepticism to them. They're asking questions not because they really want to know what's going on with Jesus. They're not asking because they really want to learn something from him. They're trying to bring him down. They're trying to discredit him. All of these things. But there's something different about this man. There is a sincerity to his, uh, his religious practice, his religious exercise. He runs up to Jesus. He kneels down before him as a sign of respect for him. He calls him good. This is a man that if you were to ask a first century Jewish person, this man has everything. When it comes to the kingdom of God, he is the golden boy. He's the one that if there's a line to get into heaven, he's at the front of the line. But what we find out right off the bat is that it is possible to have everything and yet still have nothing. We have to ask ourselves, why is he coming up to Jesus in the first place? Because if he was truly all of these things, including religious, why is he coming up to Jesus and asking for help? Because it appears he already has it all figured out, right? But he's coming up to Jesus because something is missing. There's some kind of thing that is not satisfied in him. And at the very least, he does not feel right in his heart. He does not feel satisfied in God's love. There's something, there's some kind of unrest in him. So much so that even though he has everything, he feels like he lacks what he needs to get eternal life. And and there's another way that we can tell that it's a little off. When he comes up, the question he asks is, What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, does that sound off to you? What must I do not to gain eternal life? What must I do not to acquire it? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, if we know anything about an inheritance, that's not something that you work for, is it? When it comes to an estate, when it comes to a will, all of those things that you can deal with if... Um, if you have enough money to pass down to your heirs, it's a matter of family. It's a matter of who you are in in your identity. And if I were to go up to Bill Gates and say, uh, Mr. Gates, what can I do to inherit part of your estate? Uh, 
I don't know. I don't know. It would just be an awful response because it's completely ridiculous. You, this is something that you can't do. And what he's trying to do, it's a matter of identity. He's trying to understand how can I be a part of the inheritance that God gives? What can I do? And so even though his question is sincere, there's something wrong with it. There's some kind of delusion going on in his life. And it's important to see how Jesus responds to him. That this delusion, this self-delusion in him, the only way that it can come to an end is we're going to see Jesus do a couple of things. He's going to give him a right view of God, and then he's going to give him a right view of himself. Because the first thing Jesus says is, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, some people take this statement of Jesus and say, look, Jesus isn't the son of God. Jesus just, conf- you know, just said, you know, why do you call me good? It's only that we can call God good. You know, not exactly. If you continue to read further on in all the gospel narratives, that at some point later on in Jesus's ministry, especially when he's in Jerusalem, he will be confronted. He'll be on trial in many different ways. And one of the questions he will ask his accusers is, what sin can you pin on me? I mean, think about how much Jesus was around people. For three years, he went to various cities. In each of those cities were in maybe different regions. Those regions would have different cultures. So he's exposed to all kinds of different people, hundreds of people, crowds of up to thousands of people. He's teaching all the time. He's doing all kinds of things. He's doing it all publicly. And yet at the end of his life, not a single person can accuse him of any kind of sin whatsoever. And he knows that, which is why he asks that question later on, what sin can you accuse me of? And so when he asks here, this man, why do you call me good? It's not because the man is, it's not because Jesus is trying to redirect and say, no, I'm not the son of God. What he's doing is, do you know who you are approaching? If you want to come and ask about God, do you know who you're talking to? Because only God is good. This is a problem for us, isn't it? Our culture insists that we are naturally good people. Our culture insists that we are inherently good, that it's onboard programming for us to do good and positive things in this world. And why that that can happen, that's not what the Bible communicates about who we are. And as we just saw, that's not who Jesus communicates. That's not what Jesus communicates about who we are. And in fact, a better way perhaps to read this, is he says that God alone is good and nobody else. That's another way that we can read this. He says it two times, indicating that everyone in this room, you and I, we are not good people. When you go out the doors, your neighbors, your family, the people you interact with, they are not good people. That's not a fun thing to hear, is it? It goes against everything we were taught to believe growing up. It goes against our myth of progress that we as a people can continue to progress into the future and we can build a better world and in time the right things can be put in place or the right systems, the right politicians and we can finally have that utopian society that we all dream of because we are good people and we can eventually get it there. 
But Jesus in this moment, when he says no one is good except God alone, what is he saying implicitly to this man who comes up to him and says, what must I do to be a part of God's inheritance? He implies to him, you are not good and only God is good. And this should have waken him up, but it didn't. And so Jesus continues, you know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And what Jesus just did is he quoted the, the final six commandments that are found in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5. Those are the Ten Commandments, a really famous movie about it, Charlton Heston, and uh, the Bible version's better. And so he, he quotes the final six commandments to this guy. And he says, all right, if you want to do good and get into the kingdom, here are the commandments. And how does he respond? Yeah, I've done that. No problem. I've done it. Now, there is sincerity to him, but there also is a delusion there. I have done this. He's missing the point. Because what you see all throughout the Bible is that if there truly is a good God, then he gives good commands. And if we can keep those commands, then we must be good. And if we cannot, we must not be good. This is why in the New Testament you see it most clearly that the law was given to reveal to us our guilt. To reveal to us our inability to live up to this law. Jesus is trying to end his delusion lovingly. He's trying to end this delusion in him to show him who God is and who he is. But again, the man doesn't get it. He, it doesn't click with him yet. He says, I've done this. And Jesus being, I think, just brilliant. He feels this love for him and he says, one thing you lack. Go and sell all that you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. There's, there's so many levels of genius to what Jesus just did. You see, at some point, Jesus would make this statement. He, and I'm paraphrasing. He would say, the greatest commandments of all is that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul and your mind and your strength. That is the greatest commandment. And the second commandment, is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And what he would say right after that is that on all the law and the prophets are these two. He's saying that these two commandments sum up everything that God has ever said or expected of people, that you love God with all your heart and that you love people as yourself. Interestingly, when you look at the Ten Commandments, that's how they're arranged. The first four deal with how to love God and the, the next six deal with how to love your neighbor. And what this man just said is that I have kept those commandments and loving my neighbor. The problem with that, that's going to be exposed here, is that these two commands that Jesus says, love, love God with all your heart, love your neighbors yourself, those two always go hand in hand. And what that means is, if you truly love God, it will naturally spill over into love for your neighbor. If you do not love your neighbor, then you probably don't love God like you think you do. 
And if you don't love God, then you really can't love your neighbor as you should. You get it? They're, they're intertwined. They're inseparable. And the genius of what Jesus just did is he skipped over the first four on purpose, didn't he? He skipped over all those commandments that dealt with love for God, and he jumped straight in the ones for love for neighbor. And do you see what he did? He said, okay, since you've kept those, I'm going to give you another one. Go sell everything that you have and give it to the poor. He gave him another opportunity to love his neighbor as himself, didn't he? Jesus says, it's recorded in John chapter 9, that there's no greater love than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. The greatest thing that anyone can ever do to demonstrate love for neighbors is to surrender their own lives for someone else. Now, of course, that can be physically losing your life, but in this moment, just shy of losing his own life, this man is called to surrender literally everything he has for the sake of his neighbor. And you know what Jesus just did? He exposed in him that he doesn't love his neighbor, that he really doesn't fulfill these commands in the way that they were intended to. And what did we just say? If you do not love your neighbor, you do not really love your God. Which is why this man, when Jesus answers him and gives him the very thing he wants, he gives him the door open to eternal life. Instead, he walks away sad. This is the only instance in the entire New Testament of someone encountering Jesus and walking away from him sad. Other people are angry. Other people are frustrated. Some people walk away happy and joyful and like leaping with excitement. This is the only person who walks away from Jesus brokenhearted. And yet at the beginning of this, we saw him as the golden boy for the kingdom. What Jesus just revealed in him is that he had an idol. That he didn't really love his neighbor. He didn't really fulfill those commands in the way that he thought he did because the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was not his true God. His true God was money. Now, this, uh, this section of scripture has been used many times in, in many manipulative ways because there's some pretty harsh statements in here. Now, there's a couple of things that we need to say. One, I think Jesus was very serious when he said about the difficulty of a rich person getting into the kingdom. Let me read a little further. Verse 22, this man walks away grieving because he owned much property. And Jesus says, verse 23 Looking around, he said to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus answered again and said to them, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were even more astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus isn't using allegory. He's not using symbolism. He is, he's for real about this. And they're terrified. And so Jesus is serious about the dangers of wealth. 
Now, there's more to it than just that, but we, we cannot go through this section without at least talking about that because he's, he says it is incredibly dangerous. Now, our tendency is to do this. Um, I'm not rich. I don't have you know, $100,000 a year salary. I don't have a $250,000 a year salary. Or I don't have a $50,000 a year salary. We, wealth is a relative term is what I'm getting at. Everybody in here thinks they're probably not rich and thinks of someone else. And that's the, that's the standard of measure, right? Now for a first century Jew, I can tell you that every single person in this room probably has a standard of living that was unthinkable to a first century Jew. And every single person in this room has a standard of living that is almost unthinkable to most people in what we call the underdeveloped or undeveloped world. They look at us and they think we are filthy, stinking rich. And you know what? They're right. And our tendency as Westerners, as Americans, is to take a scripture like this lightly and say, oh, it's not a, not a universal thing. And, you know, it's, it was just for this guy, you know, and to some extent that's true. But when we do that, sometimes we forget the warning that comes with this. There are certain things that we crave that we were meant to find in God alone. I mean, there's many things, but just a couple of them are, are things like security. We want to know that we will be well. We want to know that it's going to turn out all right. We want some kind of comfort or ease or another word, a biblical term would be rest. Like life is hard and we want to know that there's going to be some kind of rest and, and we want to know that in the future that there's going to be some kind of provision when we arrive at some of those unexpected places. We want to know that we're going to be taken care of. And in the end, we are supposed to look to God for these things. But you know what's troublesome about money is it very easily, perhaps more than many of the other things that we could worship, money is one of those things that could give us the illusion of security, of comfort, of provision is one of the reasons why it is so dangerous. And Jesus is serious that it is so hard for wealthy people like us to enter into the kingdom. But there's more to it, right? Because this is an opportunity. I mean, we live in a city that has angst regarding socioeconomics. Like this is an angry city when it comes to your social class and the amount of money that you make. And this is like a battle cry against the rich. But here's the problem. You can still be dirt poor and have idols, which is another lesson that is drawn out of this. What Jesus was after was not just money. He was very harsh about the idea of money and how it plays upon our hearts and it leads us astray. But if you back it up and look at the bigger picture, what Jesus did was he touched this man in a very sensitive area of his heart, in an area that he was probably covering up. Remember, he's, he's the golden boy, right? He did all of these religious things, and Jesus saw past all of it. And he reached in to that part that he may not have even seen. Maybe other people saw it, but maybe he didn't. But he reached down there, and he touched that part that hurts really bad. That part that we don't think was a God. 
Everybody is rich in something. Everybody has a tendency to find security in something. Everybody will seek to give their affections wholly to something. And if we do that with anything other than the one true and living God, then that would be called an idol. And Jesus, as a part of the process of entering into eternal life, Jesus will touch those things and it will be painful. It will leave, leave us grieving at times, but it is essential for our participation in the kingdom. And so with that said, I just want to ask you a few questions before we move on, before we build on this. <clears throat> I, I got these questions from a book called Gospel by J.D. Greer, and they are idolatry detector questions. What one thing do you most hope is in your future? What is the one thing you most worry about losing? If you could change one thing about yourself right now, what would it be? What thing have you sacrificed the most for? Who is there in your life that you feel like you can't forgive and why? When do you feel most significant or insignificant? What triggers depression in you? Where do you turn for comfort when things are not going well? Now, if we're honest... In answering these questions, if we follow the thread long enough, most likely what will happen is Jesus will touch a very sensitive area of our hearts where we realize that we, do not, we are not loving and affectionate towards our God in the way that we ought to be. We love, we love the fact that people think highly of us think that we're competent, think that we're educated, or we're in love with the fact that one day we're going to get a spouse and we'll no longer be alone. Or we're in love with the fact that we, we create these strange codependent relationships with our traumas and our griefs, and so we hang on to bitterness and anger and unforgiveness, unwilling to let them go. Or, of course, we can hang on to things like money or our children. These things can become idols to us and they stand in the way of eternal life. And for this man, there was an initial barrier that he had to overcome, but anyone who has followed Jesus for any amount of time knows that even after that initial barrier is overcome, after that initial barrier of repentance and faith, Jesus will touch your heart again and again, Revealing those idols in us because those idols, what they tend to do is they tend to prop up our self-dependence. Those gods that we serve other than Jesus, they prop up our self-dependence and keep us from being like children without rights, without resources. And Jesus does say eternal life is costly. In fact, he says it's so costly, it's impossible for us to obtain it. 
There's a reason why the disciples were surprised. This was the person who represented who they wanted to be. Someone who followed the law. Someone who was wealthy. I mean, in those days, wealth and land ownership was a sign of God's blessing and God's favor. This is how the culture saw it. This is why they are so shocked. That's why they finish up. Who can be saved if this guy can't be saved? Then who can be saved? And you know, we're not too far removed from that type of culture. I think we're in a lot of ways the same way. So let me just give you an example. I'm just going to give you a scenario. Picture two people. We don't know a ton about them, but there's two people trying to sell their house. One person, they sell their house in two days. They get their asking price. They walk away happy. They move into their new home. Life is good. Another person, it takes one year to sell their house. They have to drop, I don't know, twenty, thirty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 on their asking price, and they lose their entire life savings in the process, which, and they're both Christians. Which one was blessed by God? Now, I know you're thinking about it, and you're trying to come up with the right answer, but what was your gut response? Your gut response was the one that it went faster. They got what they wanted. We're the same as these first century Jews. We think of God in this way, about material blessings. And so here's what I want you to do. I want you just to be honest and imagine that person who you think is number one in line for the kingdom of God. Picture them. Maybe they, maybe they have money, maybe they don't. Maybe they have influence and power, maybe they don't. Whatever it is, I want you to picture because this is exactly what happened to these disciples in this moment. And when you have that person in your head, I want you to now imagine me dragging a big furry camel in here and me holding up a needle or someone holding up a needle and now I'm pushing this camel and I'm trying to shove his furry butt through that needle. That ain't happening, is it? It is literally impossible. And what he just said is the picture that you have in your mind of that person and the picture that they had, those disciples in that moment of the rich young ruler, it is impossible. And the same way it's impossible to get that camel through that needle is impossible for that person to get into the kingdom of heaven. Then what do we do? Twenty-six. They were even more astonished, and they said to him, "Then who can be saved?" Looking at them, Jesus said, "With people it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God." Amen. Because interestingly enough, um, there's another rich young ruler in this story. It's a little more subtle. His name is Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God, means he is the heir of all things that belong to God the Father. All of the earth, all of the heavens, 
all of the universe, all of existence belongs to him. And what does he do? He sells everything and he gives it to the poor. This is why in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, it says that for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. That this Jesus of Nazareth, understanding and trying to reveal to this man that there is nothing that you can do to enter into the kingdom of heaven. There's nothing that you can do to change your identity and be a part of God's family and part of his inheritance. There's nothing that you can do. Jesus can. And Jesus did. Because farther along in this story, what it looked like for Jesus to sell all that he had you find in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 8. It says that Jesus, even though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself and he took on the form of a servant. And it would go on to say that he humbled himself even more to the point of death, even death on a cross. There was no one who was richer than Jesus, and there was no one who became poorer for G- than Jesus, so that in him we might have the inheritance of God, the inheritance of eternal life. And this is why Jesus is driving that self-dependence out of this manner, seeking to, because this is not the way that the world works. In this last section, Peter began to say to him, verse 28, Behold, we've left everything and followed you. Verse 29, Jesus said, I I say to you truly, there is no one who has left house or brother or sister or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms along with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Verse 31 is reiterating the fact that God's kingdom does not work like the way the world works. And when the world continues to push the idea of self-dependence, continues to push the idea of the Renaissance man, the Renaissance woman who does not need help, God is pushing that your self-dependence and my self-dependence is killing us. And it's cutting us off from the kingdom of God. Because it's not the way that the kingdom of God works. And part of that is the fact that this is costly. There is an initial burden to following Jesus. I don't want to be afraid to use that word with you guys. Now, Matthew 11, 28 through 30, Jesus directly says, you know, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You know, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I... My yoke is easy, my burden is light, I am gentle, I am humble and hard. He says all of these things, but there is a burdensomeness to following Jesus. 
There's a costliness to it. There is a pain to following Jesus. And part of that initial process is that repentance of laying down that idol that Jesus reveals to us, this unwillingness to give up our self-dependence. There's an initial cost to it, but there's also an ongoing burden of it, isn't there? The fact that Jesus will touch your heart as you keep going and following him. Anyone who's followed Jesus for probably longer than a year knows that when he touches your heart the first time, he's not done. He's going to keep going. He's going to keep showing you stuff that you are worshiping other than him. He's going to show you these things where you are trying to be self-dependent and he's going to try to kill that in you. And it is a painful process. And aside from that, some people leave house and farm. Some people lose family for the sake of following Jesus. You may lose your job if you follow Jesus and decide that you will no longer engage in unethical business practices just to pad the bottom line, you may lose a girlfriend, a boyfriend. You may lose a roommate. You may lose a spouse. That's not unheard of. You may lose customers in your business. People on the other side of the world in highly persecuted nations, the government will literally come and take their house if they follow Jesus. One day, gone. Other parts of the world, the community will come and burn down their shop or burn down their business because they chose to follow Jesus. That's what he said. You could lose your farm, lose your business. It's not as heavy in our culture because we're highly individualistic, but there are cultures out there today who are very familial-oriented, very tribe-oriented, which means one of the highest uh, facets of identity is who you belong to as a family or as a tribe. A lot of uh, Asian countries are like this. African countries are like this. Central Asian, South American and to follow Jesus could literally mean that your family, your immediate family, your entire tribe cuts you off and kicks you out. This type of persecution is part of that ongoing burden. But what does Jesus mean when he says that you'll receive a hundred times as much? Of course, in eternal life, or sorry, in the kingdom, you will receive eternal life. That day of rest that is coming that day when we will finally have relief and we will finally have fullness of joy in the presence of God forever without any sin or any idolatry affecting us and afflicting us. But what does he mean? Because he says in the present age, right now, what does he mean? Well, we have two ways to look at this, I think. One, I think, is particularly abusive. And unfortunately, it's a lot more widespread than I wish. You see, there are so-called preachers of the gospel out there who leverage verses like this and say, if you just give to God, if you just give to this ministry, then he will give you everything. He'll give you 10 times as much, 100 times as much. The Lord will bless you if you give to this. And it's such damning theology. And it puts people in chains because then it leaves them thinking, I didn't give enough. 
I didn't believe enough because I'm not getting all of this material blessing that God said he would give me. And it's killing people's faith. It's leaving them disillusioned and angry and frustrated with God because that's what he said, right? He said, you'll give me a hundred times as much. Then where's my hundredfold, Jesus? I lost, I lost my girlfriend. I lost my spouse. Where's my new spouse? You know, I lost my kids. You know, they cut me off. They don't want to talk to me anymore. Where's my new kids? I gave this money to that ministry. Where's my, where's my hundredfold money? You see how this works and you see how dangerous that is? So that's one way we can look at it. But what's the theme been this whole time? Jesus driving out this self-dependence on us. What I believe he's talking about here, I really believe he's talking about here is the church. Part of your following Jesus is giving up your self-dependence so that you can enter into the kingdom of God. But throughout the rest of your life, that lesson is going to continue to be learned. But would God do that by leaving you alone and telling you to just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and keep you know, going through this world on your own? That would seem inconsistent to me. But I think it would be really consistent if God told a group of persecuted Chinese Christians who've all lost their families that, you know what? I know you lost four brothers, or I guess in China it'd be maybe one. Or to Middle Eastern countries, I know you lost all these brothers. I know you lost this family, but you know what? You guys come together. I'm gonna give you a new family. You had four brothers before. I'm gonna give you a hundred. I have one brother one. And here, I probably got about 25 just in this room alone. And that has nothing to do with people in other states and other churches that I've been a part of. They're people whose families cut them off, but you know what's available to them in the body of Christ? Spiritual fathers and mothers. They may have one really crappy mom and dad in this life, but you know what God can give them within a healthy church? He can give them like six 10 sets of healthy spiritual parents who will love them and help shepherd them. You have a woman who followed Jesus and so her husband left her and so now she's left with no, she can't have any kids because she doesn't have a husband, she's not married, but you know, and she grows up 20 years later, 30 years later, but you know what she'll have within the church? She'll have, if you're like the Hallows, a very rapidly increasing number of little disciples within the church that you can come and be a spiritual parent too. If you find that within the body of Christ, if you find that as a result of following Jesus, you have lost your business, you've lost your home. You know what you can find within the body of Christ? When it's healthy, you can find people who will help you get through that, who will give you a place to stay, who will help you get back on your feet. If that's what this is about, would that be continuing the theme of driving out our self-dependence? I believe it would. That future grace that is to come in God's kingdom will be revealed here and now through the church. And the church, this is why as hallows, we take church membership really seriously because when we practice being church together, it's one of the ways that we continue, honestly, to, to continue practice being childlike with each other. To, to say that we need each other. 
that I can't do this on my own. Because to say that you can love Jesus without loving his church, I think is unbiblical and it's also very dangerous. It's dangerous for your faith, but somewhere, someone somewhere, some church is missing out because what you have to contribute to that. And all of this, all of this is possible. All of this beauty, all of these, all of this painful beauty of Jesus inviting us into his kingdom, experiencing that self-death, that death to our self-dependence, that death to our idols, all of this is possible because he was the richest, the son of God, the heir of all things, the inheritor of all things, and he gave it all up. He sold it all and gave it to us who were poor so that we might share in the inheritance that belongs to him. Father God, I thank you for this opportunity to be a part of a church family. Many of us are here, God, because you have helped us. By your grace, you have helped us to take that step of being rid of our, our idols, our self-dependence. And that is an amazing act of grace in our lives. And we thank you, God. And I know that as we continue to walk on this journey, we need that grace still. Lest we seek to become self-dependent, lest we turn back to idols, or as you continue to reveal those things that were hidden even deeper than we could even imagine, God, we need you and we confess that we need each other. Even though I am weak, God, I pray that your word was strong. And I pray your body was encouraged and challenged and convicted and that we would repent of sin. Anything that you have revealed, we would turn away from it and find deeper life in you. And now, God, that we would practically respond in worship. We love you, Jesus, and we thank you for selling all that you had and giving it to us poor. We pray in your name. Amen.